Hello, and welcome to this uh, Baird podcast on an announcement that was made last week by the Irish Tánaiste, which is the Deputy Prime Minister, and he's also the Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment, Leo Vadgur, announcing the establishment of a working group to look at um, existing trade union recognition, collective bargaining structures, and other, in de- other industrial relations issues in Ireland. The review is going to be chaired by Professor Michael Doherty from Minute University. Um, Michael lectures in uh, the areas of employment and labour law, industrial relations law, uh, and EU law. Now, for a long time, um, there have been difficult issues at the heart of Irish industrial relations, and this course will be of particular interest to many of our Berg members uh, who have uh, facilities in Ireland, uh, whether it's call centres, uh, European headquarters, or manufacturing plants. Um, and I'll come back to what the review is about now in a couple of moments. Uh, there will be three parties involved in the review. Uh, there will be three nominees from the government, uh, one of whom is Professor Bill Roach from University College Dublin, uh, Claire Dunn, the Assistant Secretary from the Department of Jobs, Enterprise and Innovation, and there will be somebody from the Department of the Taoiseach, which is the Office of the Irish Prime Minister. The Irish Congress of Trade Unions will have three nominees, and the employer organisations will have three nominees. So a total of nine people, and along with the chairman, making 10. In launching the initiative and setting up the working group, the Tonishta Leo Vardiger said, and I quote, the approach to industrial relations in Ireland is one of voluntarism, whereby the state does not seek to impose a solution on the parties to a dispute, but will, where appropriate, assist them in arriving at a solution. This approach has served us very well for many years. However, he goes on to say that there is an extensive, well, there is an extensive range of statutory provisions designed to back up the voluntary bargaining process. Some of these are currently subject to legal challenges in the courts. And in light of these challenges and of international moves, and I might add of European Union developments, which we'll come on to in a couple of moments, uh, Mr. Vardiger said that it was time to have a look at Ireland's existing collective bargaining structures. What does it involve? As I said, it involves setting up a working group to look at uh, the way Irish industrial relations are conducted and the policies and procedures um, that are in place to facilitate the parties. But let's be honest about this. At the heart of this review is the question of trade union recognition and collective bargaining. Ireland is unique in the European Union and indeed in much of the Western world, to be honest about it, in not having any statutory obligation which would impose or oblige employers to engage with and deal with trade unions where those unions are representative of employees in an appropriate bargaining unit. Even the United States has the National Labor Relations Act dating back to 1935, which sets out a procedure through which trade unions can seek recognition. And that National Labor Relations Act at the moment, the new democratic majority in the Congress is looking to upgrade it and with legislation which would simplify the recognition process and strengthen the hands of trade unions, uh, whether or not the proposed new legislation in the states will make it through um, 
Congress remains to be seen. Even the UK has a procedure through which trade unions can seek recognition um, where they have sufficient members in an appropriate bargaining unit. But that's never been the case in Ireland. And it's never been the case because of the way the Irish Constitution has been interpreted by the Supreme Court when it comes to the issue of freedom of association. Let me come back to that in a couple of minutes and look at that in a little bit more detail. Launching the group, Mr. Vardiger said that it will examine the issue of trade union recognition and the implications of a trade union recognition process for collective bargaining. It will also look at the adequacy of workplace relations frameworks, um, especially frameworks which are conducive to the determination of pay and conditions of employment, having regard to legal, economic and social conditions. It's tasked also with considering the legal and constitutional impediments that may exist in the form of the current system. In doing so, the group needs to be cognizant of individual employment rights framework, but also, and I think this is critical, critical, what is happening uh, in the European Union and internationally. And I'll come back to the European Union context in a few minutes. And of course, look at uh, some things that are uh, where need tweaking in relation to existing pay determination, pay determination uh, processes and procedures. But the question, why now? Why would the Irish government set up a review group to look at what has always been a difficult and a very thorny problem? Um, and why would it do it now? I'll come back to that in a couple of minutes. But before I do that, let me talk a little bit about what the problem actually is. As I said a few moments ago, Ireland is unique in not having some sort of mechanism which allows unions to achieve recognition from employers and to engage with employers in collective bargaining um, where they have the members that would entitle them to do so, but where they don't have the economic strength uh, to actually force an employer to the table. The problem in Ireland is, can be simply stated. It comes down to the interpretation um, by the Irish Supreme Court over the years of the provisions in the Irish Constitution relating to freedom of association. The Constitution says simply, at Article 46.1, that it guarantees the right of citizens to form associations and unions. However, as early as 1961, the Supreme Court in a case known as the Educational Company case said that the right of association also implied the right not to associate. So in other words, people could not be forced to join unions against their will in certain circumstances. The court further developed that line of thinking when it said that existing employment conditions could not be altered to oblige people to join trade unions, though it was acceptable that if somebody was offered a job and one of the conditions of the job was that they joined the union on taking the job, that was okay. But where people already were in a job, the terms and conditions could not be changed to make them join the union. However, it really came to a head in the late 70s and early 80s uh, in a case known as Abbott and Whelan versus the Irish Transport and General Workers Union and Southern Health Board, when it was held that, and I quote, the suggestion 
that there is a constitutional right to be represented by a union in the conduct of negotiations with employers, in my opinion, could not be sustained. There is no duty placed on an employer to negotiate with any particular citizen or body of citizens. So in other words, what the Supreme Court was saying is that while you have a right to form and join a union, uh, the union doesn't actually have the right to engage with the employer on your behalf and no law could be passed that would oblige the employer to do so because such a law would be unconstitutional. This understanding on the part of the Supreme Court was emphasised yet again um, in a case involving Dublin City Colleges um, versus the Dublin City Vocational Education uh, Committee, where it says there is no corresponding obligation on anybody or, or person, such as the defendants herein, to recognise that association for the purposes of negotiating the terms and conditions of employment um, of its members or for any purpose. And it was all summed up neatly uh, by the late Professor uh, John Kelly uh, in an authoritative work on the Irish Constitution when he said, the right of association of employees does not imply any duty on an employer beyond respecting the right in itself. And of course, discharging his side of any agreement with employees. In particular, it does not oblige him to negotiate with any association which employees may form. So we're left with the situation that employees in Ireland can form unions and can join unions, but the interpretation of the Constitution as set out by the Supreme Court over the years is that no law can be adopted that would oblige an employer to recognise the union and engage in collective bargaining. This has always been the problem at the heart of the Irish industrial relations system and to date uh, no way of squaring that particular circle has been found. So let me come back to the question, why now? Why would the government launch a review of what is going to be an extremely difficult issue? Why would it launch it now? Let me put it this way. The answer, ironically, may well be Brexit. Now, I don't mean Brexit will have an immediate impact or a direct impact on Irish industrial relations. The immediate impact of Brexit on Irish industrial relations is the significant number of European Works Councils that are migrating from the UK to Ireland um, as their new legislative home as a result of Brexit. No, what I mean when I say Brexit is this. Brexit means that the UK has left the European Union and no longer has a seat at the table when it comes to the adoption, the development and adoption of European legislation. Going back to the late 1970s and through the 1980s, the Conservative governments of Margaret Thatcher systematically blocked the adoption of new European labour and employment laws. Mrs Thatcher famously said that she hadn't deregulated the economy in the UK, only to have it regulated again by the European back door. And when European unemployment measures moved from needing unanimity of all the member states to be adopted to simple majority voting to be adopted, qualified majority voting, uh, the UK always acted as a break uh, on 
the on new EU employment laws was always the reluctant partner. Uh, never saw the need for such laws. And let me be quite blunt about this. Quite frankly, um, Ireland was quite content uh, in many instances to allow the UK to play that role. But the UK is now gone. The dynamics are changing. Ireland is the one country, unless you want to count Cyprus and Malta, um, is the one country with a purely voluntarist labour relations system. Every other country in the European Union, uh, even the newer Central and Eastern members, have a more regulated and legally based approach to labour relations. Let me give you three examples of issues that are currently on the table that touch on the sensitive subject of collective bargaining. First, the European Commission is in the process of making it clear that European competition laws cannot stand in the way of gig economy workers and what the Commission calls solo self-employed workers organising and bargaining collectively. In other words, the Commission is emphasising the right of gig economy workers and solo self-employed, and they, for instance, would cover all of those people who are engaged as IT contractors, to join unions and to bargain collectively, or to form associations and to bargain collectively. Secondly, the Commission has put on the table a proposal on gender pay equality, and it requires companies to take action where gender pay gaps are identified. And uh, it requires that the action plan to counter these gaps should be developed in association with employee representatives. Which of course raises the question of what happens where a company does not have employee representatives. And this is not just idle speculation on our part that this could become a problem because this is already happening in Spain where legislation which prefigures what the Commission is now proposing has been in place since January of this year where a company does not have internal employee representatives it is obliged by the new Spanish law to engage with external unions even if those unions have no members in their in the company not surprisingly the main Spanish employer Federation is currently challenging this provision in the courts. But probably most important of all is a proposal from the Commission on uh, a minimum wage formula across Europe. Oh, the minimum wage aspect itself may well run into difficulties. The Scandinavian governments and the Scandinavian unions are opposed to it because it interferes with their particular model. But the second part of the Commission's uh, minimum pay package uh, is a stress on collective bargaining as the appropriate mechanism for the setting of pay and conditions. And the Commission actually wants, as part of this legislation, that national governments will be obliged to report back to the Commission with an action plan where collective bargaining coverage falls beneath 70% of the workforce. So in other words, if less than 70% of the workforce are covered by collective bargaining agreements, national governments would have to put a plan in place to resolve that problem. This legislation is a long ways from being adopted and implemented. But when you look at the three things together, collective bargaining for gig economy workers, a stress on dealing with employee representatives to develop an action plan, um, 
to put an end to uh, gender pay gaps and uh, our reporting on action plans in the context of minimum wage. Well, the correction of travel is pretty clear. And as I said at the outset, there is no longer a UK at the table uh, to uh, voice opposition to these type of proposals, which, by the way, for most European governments, French, Spanish, German, you know, won't they won't bat an eyelid over it because it's the way they do business in these countries already. The one out on its own, to a large extent, leaving aside some things in Central and Eastern Europe, the one out on its own in this regard is Ireland. So why now? Brexit and the direction of travel of European social and employment policy after Brexit. And perhaps um, the Irish government is looking at how it can get out ahead of the game before the game gets out ahead of it. So um, that's why. I think this issue has now come onto the agenda in the way it has and at the moment it has. Let me finish by asking a question. If there was a law on union recognition and collective bargaining, would it make any great deal of difference? Quite frankly, I have my doubts. Let me give you a couple of figures. In 1979, union density, that's the proportion of the workforce that were members of trade unions in the UK was 30%. Now, 1979 was the year after Tony Blair and New Labour came to power and very quickly adopted and enacted legislation to set in place a procedure to allow trade unions to claim recognition where they have the membership. Today, the latest figures from the OECD, 2018, or the last set of figures that are available, union density in the UK was 23.4%, i.e. a drop of 6-7%. A legal route to union recognition has not changed the game substantially. In the United States, 1979, union density was 13.4%. Today, it's 10.1%. And remember, when we talk about union density, 23% in the UK, 10% in the United States, a great deal of that membership is in the public service, not in the private sector. Probably union density in the private sector in the US is about 7-8%. In the private sector in the UK, probably, probably about 15%. Even Germany, often seen as the land of the strong trade unions. 79, union density was 26%. Today, it's 16.5%. Again, the other outlier is France. Union density in France for the last 20 odd years has been about 10%. In the private sector, it's probably about 5%. But collective bargaining coverage in France runs at 98%. So 98% of the working population in France have their pay and conditions determined by collective bargaining, even though less than 10% of them are members of trade unions. This is one of those mysteries. How does this work? It has to do with what's known as ergo omnes, whereby unions that are recognized by the government as representative trade unions negotiate with employers and the results of those negotiations are applied across the board, union member or not union member. So... The working group established in Ireland is to meet for the first time in the middle of this month. It's to submit an interim progress report by July of this year. Not a lot of time um, to grapple with a problem and with issues that have been developing for 30 to 40 years. Will it change things in Ireland? Who knows? Will the European Union continue to evolve or will it evolve in a direction a different direction than it would have evolved in when it comes to social unemployment policies, given the absence of the UK. Yes, I believe it will. And I think that 
the Irish government is cognizant of that, needs to get out ahead of the game. Knowing what you have to do is one thing. Knowing how to do it is another thing. There's a paper that we put together to try to sum up all of this. Have a read of it. And we'll be coming back to this issue in future Berg webcasts, Berg Bites, and we'll be tracking what happens in the Berg newsletter. But for now, hope that's been of some use to you. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.